Aren't you so glad Hannah came from South Korea to be with us? You're a blessing, Hannah. Thank you. This last month, we mourned the passing of the 41st President of the United States, George H.W. Bush. Back in 1982, when he was serving as the Vice President under our 40th President, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan sent him to Moscow to represent the United States at the funeral of Leonid Brezhnev. And Brezhnev had been the leader of the Soviet Union, Communist Russia, for some 18 years, and he had passed away because of some health issues. And so George H.W. Bush was there at his uh, funeral, and there was one thing in particular that George H.W. shared from that service, something that really stood out to him that made an impression on him. They go through this fancy uh, service for this uh, communist dignitary, and, and the casket is there, and there's all the pomp and the circumstance. And there near the end of the service, as the casket is still open, uh, the widow of Brezhnev is standing there in front of the casket motionless. And the soldiers come, and the soldiers take hold of the lid of that casket, and just as they're about to lower the lid of Brezhnev's casket, His wife very quickly does something that was one of the greatest acts of civil defiance and protest that you could ever imagine in a communist nation. Despite her husband's atheism, despite the fact that he had been a communist leader of the USSR for so many years, quickly before the casket is lowered, she reaches into the casket and makes the sign of the cross on her dead husband's chest making a clear statement not just to George H.W., but to everyone in the room, despite what my husband stood for, I am holding on to the hope that he was wrong and that there is a God named Jesus Christ who possibly can still have mercy on my husband's soul. This widow had hope that despite what her husband had said and done for so many years, that there was a hope of heaven for him somehow, some way in Christ. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. He says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Do you agree that there is hope in Jesus Christ? And there is power in that hope. Jesus Christ brings us hope. And two families are going to experience his hope as we open God's word together to Luke chapter 17. Uh, Luke chapter 7, we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses as we continue our message series that we uh, took a break from about a month ago. Uh, We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke, a study I'm calling Seek and Save. And so we finished in early December with chapter 6. Today we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 7 as we look at these two families who are going to be impacted by Jesus Christ, and he's going to bring some transformational hope to both of these families. In Luke chapter 6, uh, just so 
uh, we are reminded of where we left off about a month ago. Uh, We saw a lot happening in that chapter. Early in chapter 6, Jesus had uh, had several run-ins with the Pharisees who were the religious uh, legalists of his day there in Israel. Uh, They didn't like the fact that Jesus was not honoring their man-made traditions about what was and wasn't appropriate behavior on the Sabbath day. Uh, They didn't like Jesus very much. And so he was having these run-ins with these Pharisees early in the chapter. And then after that, Jesus spent an entire night praying to God the Father. And after a full night of prayer, uh, Jesus brought his disciples together and he chose 12 of them who he designated apostles. He chose 12 to be his inner circle, those that would follow him day after day, those who he would teach how to carry on his ministry once he would return to heaven. And so Jesus there, midway through chapter 6, chose those 12 apostles. And then after that, Jesus descends the mountain a little further. He goes to a level place and begins to teach what we call the Sermon on the Plain. We spent two weeks in late November and early December talking about that sermon on the plain from chapter 6. And in that sermon, we saw that Jesus presented this topsy-turvy, this upside-down way to live in his kingdom. Uh, Certain things that might be what we would think conventional wisdom, Jesus says, are not the way to go. You might say in in your culture uh, that if someone is is vindictive to you and your family, if someone hates you, then you respond to them with hate in kind. And Jesus says, no, you love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. You do good to those who are evil to you. He presents this topsy-turvy, upside-down way of living, and he presented that there in chapter 6. And that's where we leave off at uh, the start of chapter 7. If you missed those last few messages from Luke chapter 6, I encourage you to listen to them uh, in your spare time. You can either go to our our website and uh, see those lessons and listen to those lessons, or you can get a, a copy at the sound booth. You can request a CD if you like. But those are such important messages if you really want to live a life that's closer to Jesus Christ and a life of impact in this world in which we live. Today, as we dive into chapter 7, we're going to look at two ways to move the heart of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God with a heart that can be moved by your people. And Lord, some of us come into this room today, or some are maybe listening uh, live on Facebook, or we'll catch the message later on. Some of us, Lord, are dealing with some hopelessness, and we desperately need you to speak hope into our lives. Lord, some of us are drowning in our problems, and they're the only thing that we can see. We pray that you would help to lift our heads up and lift our eyes up to see, O God, that you are moving, that you are good, that you are strong, that you are faithful. And, Lord, may we hold on to that hope and persevere, doing what you call us to do for your honor and glory. Lord, speak to us through these two families that Jesus impacts in this chapter. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 7. Say amen if you're there. By the way, I didn't mention that we do have those handouts in your bulletin as well. I encourage you to have those handy uh, along with your Bibles with a pen or pencil so you can fill in some blanks and jot down some notes that you believe the Lord really wants you to go back and review over the next few days. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant 
whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not heard or found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house, and they found the servant well. Isn't God's word good? Isn't God's word good? Well, let's dive into this passage. You may remember that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth and things didn't go so well. By the time he returned to Nazareth, he had already been baptized. He had already spent those 40 days and nights in the wilderness being tempted. And and, uh, you remember that he overcame those temptations and he began his ministry. So he began his ministry of preaching the good news of salvation uh, through what he could offer. He began to heal the sick, and he began to open the eyes of the blind. And he gets back to his hometown of Nazareth probably a few months into his ministry. And the people had heard about all that Jesus had been teaching and what he had been doing in these other cities throughout Israel. And so the people were kind of excited to have the hometown boy come back home. But there in Luke 4, we, were, we saw that Jesus didn't get a very warm welcome. He was allowed to speak in the synagogue, and when he opened from, to the, the prophet Isaiah and read a scripture and, and taught a, a short message from that scripture, the people end up driving him out of the synagogue and pushing him to the edge of the cliff beside Nazareth, hoping to push him off the cliff to his death. And so that's not a very warm reception when you go home. There was no ticker tape parade. They hated him. They didn't like Jesus at all, and so Jesus had to leave his hometown and find another hometown. And that's where Capernaum comes into play. Capernaum was Peter's hometown, and Andrew's hometown, and James and John's hometown. And so Jesus never bought a house in Capernaum. He never rented a room in Capernaum. He didn't even have a P.O. box in Capernaum. But more than any other city or town in Israel, Capernaum became his new base of operations. And so after he chose his 12 apostles there on that mountain, after he taught them that topsy-turvy teaching in Luke chapter 6, Jesus returns to his base of operations there in Capernaum. So he returns with his 12 apostles. And it says here in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this, he returned to Capernaum, and there a centurion servant, whom his master held highly, valued highly, was sick and about to die. Now, in the Roman Empire, centurions were professional soldiers. 
They commanded around 100 men. That's why they were called centurions. That word century means 100. And so centurions commanded around 100 men. They were the backbone of the Roman military. And there in the Roman military, these centurions uh, might be likened to either a lieutenant or uh, possibly an infantry captain in the U.S. Army today. Uh, they, They were the backbone of the military. And in Jesus' day, the Jews resented the fact that Rome was an occupying force in Israel. The, the average Jew hated the fact that Caesar was in charge and calling the shots from way over in Rome. Uh, the average Jew in Israel hated the fact that they had these occupying soldiers throughout Israel keeping the peace. And they didn't like King Herod, and they didn't like Governor Pilate. By and large, the, the Jewish people did not like these Roman leaders in Israel, and by and large, they didn't like the Roman soldiers. But interestingly, the Jews did like certain centurions. They did like certain centurions, and this guy was probably at the top of their list. The Jewish people really liked this particular centurion. Now, interestingly, every time centurions are mentioned in the New Testament, they're mentioned favorably. Uh, We don't find episodes in the New Testament where a centurion is really bagged on. uh, He's really criticized. Centurions pretty much are lifted up in the New Testament. Uh, For example, we read in Luke 23, 47, that when Jesus died on the cross, the centurion at the foot of the cross praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Over in the book of Acts, we find centurions mentioned several times. The only centurion mentioned by name uh, there in Acts 10 is Cornelius, chapter 10, verse 22. Cornelius is described as a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. Over in Acts 22 and and 23, several centurions protect Paul, and uh, a mob wanted to, uh, to lynch Paul, to kill him, and these centurions came to the rescue, and they protected Paul. So they're looked at favorably there late in the book of Acts. And so we find these episodes of centurions, even though Roman soldiers were despised, and the Caesar and King Herod and Pilate were despised, the centurions, interestingly, were respected by many of the Jews. And I think we find one of the reasons why in the writings of the Greek historian Polybius. He writes, centurions must be not so much seekers after danger as men who can command steady in action. They must be men who are reliable. They ought not to be overanxious to rush into the fight. But when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and to die at their posts. So many of these centurions were viewed in a favorable light by the Jews because they were definitely a cut above your average soldier. Uh, These guys weren't just a run-of-the-mill Roman soldier. They were a cut above. They had worked themselves up to that position. They had showed themselves to be men that were well-tempered, men who were worthy of respect, uh, men that would hold their ground patiently. But when push came to shove, they would lay down their lives for the people around them. And so centurions were not average soldiers. They were a cut above. And it seems that this centurion here in Luke chapter 7 was even a cut above your average centurion. I want to share with you in these ten verses uh, five realities about this centurion that will help us wrap our minds around what God's Word is teaching us in these ten verses. I want to first of all point out that this centurion was no ordinary man. If you take a look at verses 3 and 4, The centurion asked some of the the Jewish 
elders to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. This account is also shared by Matthew in Matthew chapter 8. And Matthew includes a couple details that Luke doesn't mention. Uh, Matthew mentions that this man was paralyzed, this servant of the centurion. He was paralyzed. And he also mentions that he was in excruciating pain. So if we fuse together the details given to us by Matthew and Luke, we see that this servant of the centurion was on his deathbed. He was paralyzed in crippling pain. And he was possibly just a few hours, maybe at best a few days away from death. And so this guy had a major problem. He was about to die, and he was in excruciating pain. Possibly he had been injured as he had been in service to the centurion. We're not told how he got injured, how he became paralyzed. But the bottom line was he needed help badly, and the doctors weren't able to help him. I want you to notice what the Jewish elders say about this centurion who is asking Jesus to heal his servant. They say, this man deserves to have you do this, Jesus, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. They say that the centurion deserves to have Jesus give him favor. Some translations translate it this way. The centurion is worthy to have you do this, Jesus. The Greek word used here is used of a balance scale. So in essence, these representatives of the Jews who are coming and asking uh, this favor of Jesus on behalf of the centurion, they're basically saying, Jesus, on the balance scale of good and bad, this centurion tips the scale decidedly toward the good. They were saying he's a good man. He's a righteous man. He's done good things for the Jewish nation. He deserves to have you do this, Jesus. They agreed he was no ordinary man. Number two, this centurion had a very unusual attitude to his slave. Because in Roman law, a slave was defined as a living tool. Isn't that a a wonderfully high view of slaves in the Roman Empire? A slave was simply a living tool. In the Roman Empire, a slave had no rights. The master could mistreat him or kill him whenever he desired. If he chose to to whip him, he could whip him. If he chose to cripple him, he could cripple him. If he chose to kill him, he could kill him. In fact, one ancient teacher who was highly admired by the ancient Greeks and the, the Romans, he actually wrote that this is how you maintain an efficient estate and home. What you need to do is every year you need to get rid of all of your old and broken tools. And in the same way, at least once a year, you need to get rid of all your old and broken slaves. Isn't that sweet? Uh, Just as you might have a hammerhead fall off of the handle and it becomes useless to you and you throw it in the trash, if that slave becomes too old or too sickly to be of use to you, throw them out in the same way. Thankfully, this centurion here in Luke 7 didn't take that teacher's advice because it's very clear he had a very unusual attitude to his slave. It's clear that he cared deeply for his servant. He didn't view him as a living tool. He viewed him more as a friend or as a a family member. This centurion was special. Number three, the centurion had a very unusual attitude toward the Jews. Now, in the late 1700s, the British historian Edward Gibbon wrote a six-volume book entitled The History and De- of the Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if a guy writes a book that takes six volumes to complete, I, I think that guy is a certified expert on that particular topic. So this guy is a certified expert on the Roman Empire, and here's what he writes about religion as it was viewed by the people in ancient Rome. And I thought this statement was so stinking insightful, I just had to share it with you. Look at this, this summary from this expert on the Roman Empire. He wrote, The various modes of religion which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true. They were viewed by the philosopher as equally false and viewed by the magistrate as equally useful. Now let that statement just kind of sink in a little bit. He says such a profound thing here. Most Roman citizens were polytheistic, right? They believed in many different gods. That's the average Roman citizen, polytheistic. They believe in all these different gods, so they believe that one god, whether it was Zeus or, or whether it was Hermes or whether it was Apollos or Dionysius or Diana, all these gods and goddesses, they believed in all these different ones, and they pretty much believed that one was as good as another. And so since they believed that one god was pretty much as good as another, they basically believed that religions were pretty much as good as another. Does that sound familiar? That sound like our day where the average American, when push comes to shove, believes that, you know, Catholicism or Protestantism, you know, six in one, half dozen in the other. Catholicism, Protestantism, let's throw in Mormonism. Eh, six in one, half dozen in the other. Doesn't really matter a whole lot. If you're Catholic, great, whatever floats your boat, buddy. If you're Protestant, if you're Mormon, if you're Jehovah's Witness, yeah. You know what? I don't really believe in knocking on doors as much as you guys do, but whatever floats your boats as good as any other. Islam, don't we all believe in the same God? Yeah, God of Christianity is the same as the God of Islam, right? Right? That's what most people really believe in our nation today. That's pretty much how they believed back then. The Word of God greatly differs with that belief. The God of Scripture is not the God of Islam. The God of Scripture is not the God of Mormonism. The God of Scripture even differs from the God of Catholicism. But we don't want to bring that up in our politically correct, let's keep everything on an even keel and not offend anyone culture. But these people believe that all gods were pretty much the same. But notice what the intellectuals believed. The philosophers in ancient Rome, they didn't believe that all these gods are pretty much the same. They believed all this was a bunch of hogwash. And I was reading this and thinking, that's just like the average university philosophy professor today. You go to a UC school or a Cal State school, or you go even today to Harvard or Stanford or Yale, an Ivy League school. By and large, the average humanities professor, psychology professor, sociology professor, philosophy professor believes that all of this stuff with religion, when push comes to shove, is a bunch of hogwash. There is no God. There's only reason. And so the average philosopher in their day, much the same as an average university professor today, and then the third group he calls out in this quote, the magistrates believed these religions were equally useful. There was a common thing said back then by the 
uh, magistrates, by the political leaders, and most of you have probably heard this mentioned at some time or another, that religion is the opiate of the people. Religion is the opiate of the people. In other words, religion is a very practical and useful drug. You keep the people all doped up on religion, and it'll be easier to keep them from revolting against their government. That's what many of the magistrates, the average magistrate, believed back then. And so you've got this conglomeration of crashing uh, worldviews and beliefs back then. The average Roman believed that all gods are pretty much the same. All religions are pretty much the same. You had the average uh, philosopher, intellectual, believing that all this was a bunch of hogwash. And meanwhile, the magistrates are saying, let the people have whatever religion they want because it allows us to oppress them more easily because most religions tell them not to revolt. And so this was what was going on back then in the Roman Empire. So with all of this historical context in mind, we might expect that this centurion would be less than enthused about the Jewish religion. We might expect, since he had worked himself up and had a pretty decent salary, a centurion would make about twice as much as what the average soldier would make. So he made a pretty decent living. You might say he was a middle-class guy. You might say he, he would lean toward that second group of intellectuals. He's a sharp fellow, believing that religion pretty much is all hogwash. Or maybe he uh, goes along with the magistrates who were his supervisors, believing that this was a wonderful opiate to keep the people oppressed and drugged up on something other than thoughts of revolt. You might think he would lean toward group two or lean toward group three, but interestingly, this centurion was a very religious man. He had a very high view of the Jewish religion and a high view of God and the way that they worshipped God. It's clear from these verses that the Jewish elders respected him and honored him because he had put his money where his mouth was. He didn't simply say, hey, I honor Yahweh, Jewish people. He actually bankrolled the building of their synagogue. That's impressive, isn't it? It's one thing to say, hey, I like you Jewish folks. Hey, that's that's a darn shame you don't have a synagogue in Caesarea. Maybe one of these days you guys will take a collection and you'll get that thing paid for. Good luck with that. Pat on the back and he's off doing his duties. No, he actually saves up and bankrolls the building of their synagogue. And these Jews are completely blown away by this Gentile centurion who had such a high view of God. Number four, he was a humble man. He was a humble man. I like this point in particular. It's interesting. I find that in verse five, the Jewish elders tell Jesus that the centurion deserved to have Jesus heal his servant. They basically say he is worthy to have you do him this favor. But notice the man himself says the opposite in verses 6 and 7. The centurion doesn't say, hey, I'm worthy. In verses 6 and 7, he delivers this message to Jesus. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. The Jews might be saying the centurion's worthy, but the centurion looks at himself and says, I'm nowhere close to being worthy. He was a humble man. He was an important military leader, but he was a humble Humble man. I like how Pastor Chuck Swindoll points out uh, another aspect of his humbleness as he was studying verses 6 and 7. Swindoll wrote, The soldier clearly understood that Jews don't normally enter a Gentile's home for fear of ritual contamination. 
For Jesus to enter might require a time-consuming purification ritual and temporary disqualification from worship in the temple. The centurion hoped to spare Jesus the trouble. Furthermore, he saw himself as unworthy of Jesus' kindness. What a humble thing to do. You know, Jesus, I, I don't necessarily understand all the Jewish ritual laws about going into a Gentile's home and all the rituals you have to go through to purify yourself so you can go back to synagogue or go back to the temple. I may not necessarily understand all that, Jesus, but I understand it enough to know that you're going to be going through a lot of trouble and inconvenience if you come into my home. I tell you what, you just say the word from where you are. I want to save you the trouble of being ritually defiled by coming into a non-Jewish man's home. What an insightful, humble thinking pattern this man had. He was a humble man. And then finally, number five, he was a man of faith. He was a man of faith. There are only two times in uh, Jesus' life when we're told that Jesus was amazed. The first time was told to us by Mark in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. He shares the story of Jesus returning to his hometown a little bit differently than Luke does. And in Mark 6, 6, as Jesus is back in his hometown of Nazareth, uh, Mark says that Jesus wasn't able to perform any miracles, and he was amazed by their lack of faith. Jesus was amazed that his own hometown folks didn't believe his teaching or believe in his miracles. And so Jesus was amazed because of their lack of faith in Mark 6, 6. The other time Jesus is mentioned as being amazed is here in Luke chapter 7. He is amazed in verse 9 by the centurion's faith. So if Jesus were ever to be amazed by you, for what reason would it be? Reason number one, amazed because of your lack of faith. Or reason number two, amazed because of your active faith. Two times he's amazed. One because of lack of faith, the other time because of a great faith. Jesus is blown away by the centurion's faith. He basically says, I've been going through Israel for months now, speaking the message primarily to the Jewish people who were expecting the coming Messiah, who were expecting the coming Savior, who knew all the promises of the Old Testament about what that Savior would be capable of doing. And I haven't found that type of faith among any of them. But here I find it among this Gentile centurion. Jesus was blown away. And this centurion, he knew how authority works. He as a centurion didn't need to be physically present in every single location where his orders were being carried out. He had a hundred soldiers at his beck and call to carry out his orders in areas miles and miles away from where he personally was standing. He understood how authority works. In simple childlike faith, the centurion reasoned that Jesus could do the exact same thing he does when he gives an order. He didn't need to be physically standing next to his servant in order to heal his servant. He didn't even need to be in the same house as his servant. Jesus could simply say the word to dispatch the order and his servant would be instantly healed. That's some great faith. Jesus was amazed at his faith and Jesus was moved by the centurion's faith, according to Matthew 8:13, the parallel account, his servant was healed a few hours later. Is that what it says in Matthew 8? Matthew 8:13, his servant was healed at that very hour. Praise God. The centurion's simple childlike faith had moved the heart of Christ. Let's pick up in verse 11, the second family that Jesus impacts. 
Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. I bet they did. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up, and he began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and also through the surrounding country. This is the only time that the town of Nain is mentioned in the New Testament. The town still exists today. It has about 200 residents today. And as they've done archaeological digs, They've come to the conclusion that Nain probably has never been much larger than about 200 people. So in Jesus' day, it was about 200 people probably that lived there. And so this large crowd gathers for this little boy's funeral procession. And so you can pretty much guarantee the whole town showed up. 200 people, they pretty much all knew this kid. And they show up, and Jesus arrives to this little town. We have no record of him ever returning to this town. And so we believe that God the Father had said, Jesus, today your mission is to go to this little town of Nain. Interestingly, just five miles from Nazareth, his hometown. He goes to this little town of Nain, and there he has a large crowd of his own that follows him from Capernaum. And so he comes with a crowd of probably a few hundred and meets this other crowd of a few hundred as a part of this procession. And according to verse 12, as Jesus approached the town gate with his disciples, he does see this funeral procession. This dead boy is being carried out to his burial place. This young man was the only son of his mother. And Luke takes the time to tell us that she was a widow. And although this doesn't sound very pleasant to our politically correct ears in the year 2019, the fact is that throughout most of history, When a grown woman did not have either a husband or a son to take care of her, most of the time women did not survive very well throughout most of human history. In male-dominated societies, women were very limited with what they could do outside the home to earn money. And so without a husband to help provide for them, without a grown son who could help protect them, they were oftentimes abused, oftentimes raped, oftentimes killed. And so in Israel, you notice in Old Testament times, God made sure to make provisions in the Old Testament to tell the Jewish people to take care of widows in their community. Because God understood that in male-dominated societies, oftentimes those widows were up a creek without a paddle. But this writer, Luke, wants us to understand that even though she was in Israel and there was a certain amount of of safeguard that had been established in that nation of Israel for a widow like her, she was still up a creek without a paddle. Her husband had died, leaving her as a widow, and now her only son had died. And so she was in a tough, tough situation. Well, Jesus goes up. To that coffin. In those days, they didn't have closed lid coffins in Israel. It was more like, you might consider it like a bamboo mat. 
where they would carry it up on their shoulders with poles. There were cross beams and then vertical beams. And so his body would be able to be seen from the sides and above. And so Jesus goes up and he touches this this fixed mat, this, this coffin that the boy was lying on. And then the procession stops. As Jesus touches that casket, the procession stops. And those pallbearers are kind of stunned wondering what's going to happen next because Jesus had just said, don't cry. Don't cry. I'm reminded of little Brianna yesterday that stepped up to the microphone at Teresa Summerlin's celebration of life. And those of you that know Brianna, Elena's daughter, know that she, for most of her life, has been, for the most part, nonverbal, struggles with some learning disabilities, some autism. And that little girl stepped up to the microphone yesterday and gave one of the most beautiful little eulogies I've ever heard in my life. I've been in hundreds of funerals. And those were some of the most beautiful words I've ever heard at any memorial service. And one of the things she said was, don't cry. Don't cry. And I was thinking, wow, I know what I'm preaching tomorrow right here from Luke 7 where Jesus says, don't cry. And her mom, Elena, she's about to cry right now because it was just awesome. Don't cry. So the pallbearers stop and they're thinking, I'm pretty sure this is that Jesus guy we've heard about, but this is just plain weird. You don't touch a dead body, and you don't touch the coffin, and he's supposed to be a rabbi. And he's saying, don't cry. When you had a funeral procession like this, you would hire ladies to come out and be professional mourners. And so those that are getting their palms greased by being there crying are wondering, why are you telling us not to cry? It's our job today. But Jesus says, don't cry. Verse 13 and 14. Jesus feels her pain, and when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, Don't cry. He went up, touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. I bet they did. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. Can you imagine the shock on everyone's faces when all of a sudden, whoop, he sits up in his little coffin? I, I would have loved to have been there. I want to know, did the pallbearers just drop him? <laughs> They're carrying this guy up on their shoulders, and all of a sudden, whoop, he sits up on his coffin. That's nuts. They'd never heard or seen anything like this. He sits up in his coffin. He begins talking. Verse 15, the dead man sat up, began to talk, and Jesus, I love this part, gave him back to his mother. For this grieving mother, all hope seemed lost. She was drowning in grief and hopelessness. But Jesus' heart was moved by her grief so much that he raised the dead for her. The Gospels give us three accounts of Jesus raising someone from the dead. And this is the first of those three accounts right here in Luke chapter 7. The dead had been raised. And it made a huge, huge impression on all those who heard about it. Look again at verses 16 and 17. When they all saw this, they were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. I want to suggest to you that we have in these first 17 verses of chapter 7, two case studies in hope. 
And there's a couple lessons that we can pull from those case studies. Number one, lesson number one, hope in Christ doesn't necessarily eliminate our problems, but it does help us overcome them. Can I get an amen to that one? Hope in Christ doesn't necessarily eliminate our problems, but it does help us overcome them. In my studies last week, I came across this quote from an American playwright, Thornton Wilder. Many of you uh, may recognize his name. He's best known for the play he wrote, Our Town. And uh, the writer of Our Town, this playwright, Thornton Wilder, wrote these words. He wrote, hope is a projection of the imagination. So just hold on to that for a moment. Hope is a projection of the imagination. So is despair. Despair is a projection of the imagination. Despair all too readily embraces the ills it foresees. Hope is an energy and arouses the mind to explore every possibility to combat them. That's a rather deep statement. Just read it a few times as it's on the screen there. Just allow it to sink in. I think it's so insightful. Now, hope is much more than he conveys here as a projection of the imagination, but this is certainly a big part of it. Hope is, if you think about it, Reaching out in your imagination and taking hold of what could be. Despair much the same thing as you're surrounded by crummy circumstances. Despair is reaching out in your imagination and looking at a worst case scenario and taking hold of that worst case scenario. I think this helps us to understand how we can train our minds to take hold of hope instead of taking hold of despair. I think that's what uh, little Brianna taught us yesterday as she gave her little eulogy. And I got to tell you, when she shared what she shared, you know what I was reminded of? I was reminded of that little five-year-old boy, Colton Burpo. His dad wrote that book ten years ago, Heaven is for Real. And then they made a movie based on that book. And I I can't stand up here and say one way or another whether that kid actually was given the experience of seeing heaven firsthand. I can't speak to that. But what I can say is what I heard yesterday reminded me of little Colton Burpo that was describing in detail what Jesus and heaven are like. And as Brianna was up here, it was not just that she was just trying to speak words of encouragement. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ had spoken to this little girl and said, this is what Teresa is experiencing right now. I want you to share it with everybody. And so not only does she step up and say, don't cry. She begins talking about how Teresa was a follower of Jesus, and she is with Jesus right now, and she's no longer sick anymore, and so we don't need to cry because she's with Jesus. And it was as if we were hearing a firsthand account of what was going on with Teresa in this moment. I don't know about you, but I was deeply moved by what that little girl shared, a projection of Jesus had given her a picture of Teresa right now being safe, Teresa smiling and rejoicing and dancing and leaping and never having had it any better. What a beautiful thing hope is. When we discipline ourselves to put our hope in Jesus Christ, our minds and our imaginations begin to project thoughts of his goodness and project thoughts of his strength and project thoughts of his grace and project thoughts of his deliverance. And even if our lousy circumstances don't change, we are changed in the midst of those lousy circumstances, in the midst of our lousy situations. Hope gives us a new lease on life. Amen? 
Hope is what allows a prisoner of war to survive the most excruciating pain. Those who are experts on survival uh, training will teach people, if you are out in a situation, out in nature, and you are on your own, you need four things to survive. You better make sure as quickly as you can, you take hold of a clean water source. You need water to survive. Number two, you need nourishment, some sort of food source to survive. Number three, you need shelter to survive. And guess what number four is? You need hope. Well, isn't that something? Even an atheist wilderness survivor has come to understand what God's Word has told us for thousands of years. You and I desperately need hope. Lesson number two, the heart of Christ is moved by our childlike faith and by our brokenness. Therefore, when we turn to Christ, there is always hope. There is always hope. I want to share with you a story I didn't plan on sharing until this morning, but I I just got to share it with you. Got a call from my mom on Friday. Most of you know that my dad had a major stroke on August 1st and it uh, hasn't affected his physical ability to walk or stand or maintain his balance. Fortunately, he still has those abilities, but has severely affected his ability to speak, his ability to process other speech, and his ability to make rational decisions. Sometimes he makes some unsafe decisions that put himself and my mom in harm's way. Well, my mom calls me on Friday and tells me what happened that day. I'll skip the first story. That's interesting also, but I'll cut to the second one. She goes over to the mall there in Thousand Oaks where they live, and she went to J.C. Penney and was doing some shopping, and my dad came into the mall with her, and he was sitting in a chair outside of the dressing room in J.C. Penney. And she comes out of the dressing room after a few minutes, and my dad is gone. I bought her an ID bracelet that my dad wears, so at least it has his name and that he suffers from a stroke and my mom's contact number, but he doesn't have any GPS on him, so she had no idea where he was. And her heart dropped, she was telling me, and she didn't know what was going on. Now, over the years, my mom has told me over and over, I tell God all the time, Dane, that I'm dumb, stupid, and ignorant. And for years I thought, man, my mom has a self-esteem problem. Don't call yourself dumb, stupid, and ignorant, but I don't suggest you do the same. But in my mom's unique way, that's her way of saying, I let Jesus Christ know on a regular basis that I'm completely dependent on him and I'm helpless without him. So she begins praying. And all of a sudden, a lady comes into her path. She says she's wearing a red sweater. She comes up to her and says, yeah, I noticed a man that was wandering around looking like he was looking for someone. I saw he went that way. Hey, I'll join you. Come follow me. And so my mom's walking with this lady in this red sweater, leads her to the edge of where JCPenney is opening up into the mall. And as my mom starts to enter in the mall from that store, she looks across and sees my dad sitting on a bench just inside the mall. My mom starts heading to that man, and as she turns back, the lady is gone. She said, I didn't think about it at the time, but that was an angel. And some of you out there might say, it was no angel. She just happened to slip away. It was just a person. Well, you try telling my mom that. You try telling me that. Because I know 
over the course of my life time and time again that God Almighty has come through when I was in a state of helplessness, when I was in a state of hopelessness, and just like he did for this widow that thought all hope was lost, Jesus' heart responds to the hearts of the hopeless and the helpless, and he does it time and time and time again, and he will do the same for you. He responds just like he did to the centurion. He responds to simple childlike faith. That childlike faith can turn the heart of Jesus Christ and that hopeless heart and that helpless heart that says, God, I can't do it without you. He responds to that as well. And in Luke 17, excuse me, Luke chapter 7, in these 17 verses, I think Jesus wants us to walk away with that. You know what? You're going through some stuff. You come to him with your simple childlike faith. You come to him with your hopelessness. You know what? When Jesus was touching that casket and that boy was still dead, the only thing his mom had to offer was her hopelessness. And wouldn't you know it, that's the only thing that Jesus needed from her for him to respond with a miracle. And the same may be true of you today. Maybe you don't even have much faith. Maybe you don't have anything to offer Jesus but your hopelessness. But don't overlook the power of your hopelessness. You surrender that to Jesus Christ. And he can do amazing things with your hopelessness. Father, we come to you thanking you for your grace and your mercy in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would embolden our faith, that, Lord, you would be amazed, not by our lack of faith, but by our simple childlike faith in you. And, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not overlook the power of our hopelessness when we put it in your hands. May we come to you. We pray that you would touch our hopelessness and bring new life to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand right now as the praise team comes up. And in a moment, we'll lead us into this time of invitation. We never want a service to end here at FCC without giving you an opportunity to be prayed for if you need to be prayed for.